If you are just joining us this week, we've been going through this study called This Is Our God, looking at who God is and and why that matters, what that means to us. This is week four of a seven-week study in that uh, next week, uh, a team from the Off the Wall Ministries, a ministry that uh, Pastor Larry was was involved with, helped start uh, at a church that he pastored in Ohio some years ago. Uh, They'll be coming up here. They're going to be helping with the VBS we're putting on next week. One of their leaders, Travis, is going to be coming here and sharing uh, with us next week in the service. Uh, a, a good speaker, you're going to want to come and, and hear him, what he has to say. And also, as Lisa mentioned, that, that discipleship training class on Saturday, um, you're not going to want to miss that either. So we're excited about um, what's coming up next week as we take a little pause in the series. This week, though, we're talking about the greatness of God. The greatness of God. And, and I wanted to start, there's a little story about a, a lady. Uh, her name is... Uh, Shirley MacLaine. Some of you may know her. She's a, a famous actress, not as famous now as she used to be. And uh, Shirley, she once um, she got she she hired this spiritual guru named David, and she asked David the meaning of life. I don't know if it's the greatest idea to ask the meaning of life from a spiritual guru named David, um, but nonetheless, she did, as depicted here in this TV movie about her life and. Um, David told Shirley, he said, Shirley, he said, happiness and meaning and purpose is inside of you. He said, you, Shirley, are everything. He said, everything you need to know about the universe is inside of you. And, and, and spiritual guru David taught Shirley all about this God truth within her. And so he took Shirley to the edge of the Pacific Ocean, and he said, I want you to scream at the top of your lungs. I want you to declare this God truth, and I want you to say, I am God. So Shirley, she, she comes to the edge of the ocean, kind of hesitantly, half-heartedly, she's like, I am God? And, and, and she says, that sounds so arrogant. It sounds so pompous. It is. And, and, she, and, and David looked at her, and, and spiritual guru David, he scolded her. And he said, Shirley, do you see how little you think of yourself? He said, do you, do you see how little you think of yourself? And, and Shirley was, was sort of embarrassed by what David was pointing out. And, and she said that she got this holy boldness. And she said, intuitively, I knew that he was right. And so she stood at the edge of the ocean and she stretched her arms toward the heavens and she, she yelled over and over again, I am God! I am God! As the ocean waves lap at her feet. And day after day, Shirley would come to the edge of the ocean and she would declare this God truth that she indeed was God. And I, and I, think, about, I think about the actual God up, in the, up, up, up high and he's got the, the, all the little galaxies in the palm of his hand. And there's this little speck called Earth in the middle of his palm. And, and he leans down and he says, what was that? What, what was that? And he hears in this little chipmunk voice, I am God. And he's like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you see, if our universe is small, then our God can be small. Our God can be us. 
But if we, if we understand how, how vast, how immense, how immeasurable this universe really is, we see that for, for there to be a God of this universe, that he likewise needs to be big and immeasurable. And we cannot be that God. The question I want to ask this morning is, is how big is your God? How big is your God? Or maybe better said, do you, do you realize, do we realize how, how big and how great and how awesome our God is? Because you see, the, the greatness of God is, is central to everything. The greatness of God is relevant to every thought that you think, every emotion that you feel, every action that you do, every word that you, you say. John Piper said it this way. He said, if, if we saw the greatness of God, if, if we truly understood and believed how enormous our God is, he says, watch how it affects every aspect of your life. He says, if we saw the greatness of God, we would not be so greedy and covetous. If we saw the greatness of God, our eyes wouldn't stray after lustful images and thoughts. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't get angry at our children so easily. Some of you are like, what? If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't pout and get hurt so easily in our marriages. If we saw and believed the greatness of God, we wouldn't worry about our looks so much. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't spend time watching mindless, sordid, defiling TV programs. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't get so discouraged with the evil and godlessness of our culture. And if we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't give in to our appetites and overeat in boredom and depression. There's not a corner of your life that's not affected by the way that you see your God. And if we're going to understand that this morning, it's not going to be because I'm able to convey it to you. So let's start in prayer. Father, I just pray this morning that I would get out of the way. Um, that our brains, that our mouths cannot understand and declare adequately how wonderful you are. So Father, by your grace, use me as your instrument. And may we hear from you this morning. May we see and understand, and most importantly, believe, grasp onto, depend upon wholly how big you are. Show us yourself this morning, Father, by your grace, through your Son. It's in his name we pray, amen. I want to look here briefly this morning, nine things, nine attributes as pertaining to God. We're going to kind of fly through these, and then we're going to slow down, and we're going to look at what God's greatness means for, for God, and what God's greatness means for us. It's kind of where we're going. So number one, God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. Romans 11 says it this way, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and ways. Paul says we cannot understand God. We cannot comprehend God. So let's close in prayer and go to the restaurants before the Bible chapel lets out. Huh? Is that the word? No. So, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't mean that God is unknowable. Paul says in Philippians 3, there is no greater thing. Everything else is worthless compared to the treasure of knowing Jesus. 
He's not saying we can't know him, but he says our little human brains can never, will never fully wrap around the wholeness of God. But this is not something to be discouraged about. This is something to delight in because God's incomprehensibility is central to our worship of him. If we fully understood God, if he was a a bite-sized God that we could kind of wrap up and know and figure out, then man, it would be impossible to exalt in that God. Alva McLean said it this way. He said, the climax in other types of experiences is achievement. But here, the climax is not mastery, but in being mastered and overwhelmed by a reality which is incomprehensible. He says, to know God is not to master God. It is to be mastered by God. To know God is this eternal treasure hunt where you continue to plumb the depths of the greatness of God and you never get to the bottom. It's jumping into this ocean and being overwhelmed, enveloped in his greatness. We're never going to fully know him, and yet the chase is never going to want to stop. Number two, God is self-existence. John 5 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. It says God has life in himself. No one gave life to God. No one caused God to exist. He exists because he exists. He told Moses, I am. I am. I simply am. And the source of God's existence, in contrast to everything else in the known universe that he created, is holy within himself. God depends on nothing. He needs nothing outside of himself to exist or to perpetuate. The philosophers of old called him the unmoved mover. There's no one who moves God. There's no one who created the creator, which is just mind-blowing if we really just camp on it for, for, for a little while. Number three, God is eternal. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or brought forth the whole world, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God said, I am. God is. He didn't become. He always has been, and he always will be. God dwells outside of time and space, which is impossible for our human minds to comprehend, because everything we know has a start and an end. Every relationship, every life you've known, every activity you've engaged in, everything in, in this created universe that we see and understand has a beginning and has an end. So to imagine that God is eternal in both directions is is too big for our finite minds to really wrap around. Number four, God is infinite. Psalm 147, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. It's interesting, this psalm here, it's the only time the English word infinite actually appears in in the scripture. The Latin word meant without end. The, The Hebrew word meant there's no number. There is no number. There is no limit. There is no end to to who God is. What, What this means is God is holy without limits. 
except those that he self-imposes. This means that it's not like God has 40 holiness and then one day it's going to run out and he has no more holiness. His love has no limits. He says, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the skies. There is no limit to whatever God is. He is that infinitely. The only limits that there are, the limits that are self-imposed, one example of that is when, when God came to, to earth in human form, Jesus put some self-imposed limitations on himself. He was at one place at, at one time. There were, there were things about his godness that he self-imposedly limited for that time being. But other than his self-imposed limits, there are no limits to, to who God is. Number five, God is unchangeable. Psalm 33, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. This means that there is no change in God's nature, his character, his mind, or his will. This fact about God is the necessary fact for our faith to stand. If God was lovingly faithful today, but tomorrow he decided to change his mind, eh, I'm not faithful anymore. I don't love you anymore. There would be no rock to stand on. But what God is today, he was a thousand years ago, and he will be in a thousand years to come. His nature, his, his will, it's unchanging. And that, that allows our faith to rest on it, assuredly. Number six, God is perfect. Matthew 5, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is, is perfect. To say God is perfect, it's to say that he is complete. He's lacking in nothing. Everything that God ought to be or he could be is fully realized. God gets straight A's. There's nothing. You can't improve God. You can't better God. And this expresses itself in everything that he does and he touches. God's work is perfect. Everything that he does is the best that it could have been done. His knowledge is perfect and it's complete. He couldn't know anything more beyond what he already knows. His ways are perfect. The way that God goes about things are the best possible way to go about them. His law is perfect. If you were able to fully keep the law of God, you would be perfect. Now we're sinners and no one can, but if we could, we would be perfect because he is perfect. His will is perfect. What he desires for himself, for us, is the best possible outcome there is. And his gifts that he gives to us are perfect, says James. Number seven, we get into the omnis. Um, seven, God is omnipresent, which means all um, present, all places. He is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, God, Jeremiah says, can any, or God says, can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and earth, says the Lord? It would be a really big bummer to play hide-and-go-seek with God, right? Say, all right, God, you hide. And he's like, no, just don't even, just don't even try. It's not going to work. God, because he's infinite, because he's outside of, of time and space, God is in the universe, everywhere, present, simultaneously. God is spirit. Jesus has a body right now, but God himself is spirit, and he's everywhere, at all times. Now, this doesn't mean, this is different than pantheism. Pantheism says that that means that God is in everything. God's in the rock. He's in the tree. God is all and in all. God is not everything. God is, he transcends his creation. He is above and independent of his creation, but everywhere you go in the universe, God's presence is there. 
Number eight, God is omniscient, which means all-knowing. Science is knowledge, so he is all-knowing. Hebrews 4, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. God is everywhere, and he knows everything. Or much more simply put in 1 John, he knows everything. He knows everything. Now, God, God has, knows every hair on our head. He sees every sparrow that falls, and he knows every thought that you and I have. Now, this is both terrifying and comforting. Terrifying in the sense that when we love wickedness, we want to hide in the dark. God says, I know the thoughts of your heart. I know them before you speak them, or whether or not you ever speak them. We're fully known, and yet the beautiful thing is we're fully known and fully loved. Psalms 56, David said it this way, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. God knows every tear that we shed, and he cares about each one. He collects them. Matthew 6 says, he knows what you need before you even ask it both terrifying and comforting to know that he knows everything. And then the last one, number nine, uh, his omnipotence, potent, powerful. God is all-powerful. Genesis 17 and 18 together, they say, I am God Almighty. And then rhetorically, is there anything too hard for the Lord? God's power, like all of his other attributes, is limitless. Now, God is able to do all things consistent with his nature and character. People will say, well, God, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it and they try to catch you? It's a logical fallacy, and C.S. Lewis says nonsense is nonsense even when it pertains to God, right? So what we're saying is that he cannot, he cannot conflict with his own nature and character. Second Timothy says it this way, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. In other words, God can't sin because that violates his holiness. He can't stop being faithful because, by definition, God is faithful. But everything that God is, everything that is consistent with his nature and his character, he is without limits. We know the second law of thermodynamics. It says everything's wearing down in the universe, right? My body is a testament to that, amen, right? Everything's moving toward entropy, chaos. There is no perpetual motion machine, Although last week I did substitute for the four and five-year-olds, and some of them challenged that theory. Um, <laughs> it's a lot scarier teaching four and five-year-olds than you all, I'll tell you that much. But we made it. Everything wears down. Everything but one. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God is outside of the second law of thermodynamics. He never wearies. He never tires. God will not die. He will not slow down. He will not wear out what he is today. He will just as powerfully be 10 million years from now. So, this is, so what, what does God's greatness mean for God? He's the starting point. What does God's greatness mean for God? It means, first of all, this. He cannot be stopped from accomplishing his purposes. 
God cannot be stopped from accomplishing his purposes. Daniel 4. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, if we go back to, to Shirley MacLaine, all right, our dear misguided soul. You say, all right, Shirley, if you're God and you're standing on the edge of the ocean, why don't you attempt to stop one of those waves? Just one of those waves. Stand there at the ocean and hold out your hand and say, enough, stop. Will the winds and waves obey you? Can you stop even one wave from lapping at your feet? See, if God purposes in his heart to do something, there is nothing in all of creation that he created that can stop him from doing that. And all the rebellion in the human history of mankind, us shaking our tiny little fists at God, he's just like, oh, that's cute. Get out of the way. Secondly, it means that his power is superior to all other powers. God's power is superior to all their powers. I remember learning about this fact, God's greatness. I was thinking about it uh, during a camera trick during the Olympics in 2008. Beijing, China, they, they, China hosted the 2008 Olympics, and um, a, a country that pulls no punches when it does something, it gave what most would say was the greatest opening ceremonies in the history of the Olympics. It was unbelievable. I don't know if you watched it. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. 15,000 performers for one night They spent $300 million for stages and lighting and LED screens and fireworks. And there was a dude running laps midair, hundreds of feet above the earth with a torch in his hand. And I remember just watching it. My jaw was on the floor. I couldn't believe what I'm seeing. And and then the camera kind of pans out and it shows the the whole stadium from above. And you can see all of the 91,000 people in the stadium cheering at this is awesome and they're just going nuts it's this thrilling exciting amazing event but then this interesting thing happens the the camera pulls back and it keeps pulling back up to the blimp or helicopter or whatever you know taking this this image and when it gets all the way up to the top all you see down on earth is this tiny little blurry dot I thought, man, like all the excitement, all the splendor that we're seeing in this stadium. And from God's point of view, it's just this tiny little blurry dot. And then you, I thought about the opening ceremonies that God puts on every morning. As he puts the sun up in the air, 93 million miles away, if you looked at it, it could blind you. This, this sun that's 865 thousand miles thick this thing is 1.3 million times larger than planet earth that little stadium has nothing on it it's this burning ball of gas it's over a million degrees centigrade and you do the the transit the the uh the math in your head whatever that is fahrenheit i don't know and god just flings it up in the heavens with his finger day after day And that fills us with the hope that one day we're going to enter a land in which all the wonders on earth are just a blurry little dot compared to the greatness of our God. 
and what he has for us. See, there's nothing on earth, the largest ocean, the highest mountain, in the whole universe, this puppet show of stars that he puts out every night across the Milky Way galaxy, 100,000 light years from one end to the other, which is just one galaxy of millions of galaxies in this universe. None of that compares to the perfection, the majesty, and the bigness of our God. What God's greatness means for God is that no one can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. There's no power that's bigger than God's power. For us, what does it mean for us? Number one, it means reverence. It means reverence. Job 40, Job says, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. He says, Who out there, what human being can point to God and say, You did it wrong, God. Who, who can correct him? You know, what you meant to do was this. God, you're off base here. He says, who is going to dare to accuse God? We will not always understand. Often, we won't understand what God is doing in our lives, in this world. But we cannot accuse him. It's a horrendous sin in the sight of our God. Romans 9 says it this way. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Can you imagine the clay? He says, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? The clay shouts back at the potter, you missed a spot, you messed up, I'm not as pretty as I should have been, I should look more like that pot. He says, the clay doesn't talk back to the potter. The potter does what he wants with the clay. The clay makes itself available to be molded. You see, reverence, reverence is a foreign emotion to a sinful person. And I think specifically in our culture, or a very irreverent culture, and I'm very guilty of irreverence often myself, what we do is we belittle God, and it's easy for us to think of him as our buddy, our sidekick, or maybe a, a grandpa we come and ask for favors for. And there's no reverence for a little God. Reverence, as, as John Piper ex explained it, and, and I love this, it's a, it's a combination of admiration and fear. It's this kind of paradox of awe and dread wonder and terror. It says when you, when you look at God, it, it, it should be some combination of ah and whoa. To, to fully see him as he is. There is a terror there. There is also beautiful wonder. And this is something we long for, is it not? That's why we go on roller coasters that both simultaneously freak us out but we get such a thrill out of. It's why we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's why we, we take a boat to the bottom of the Niagara Falls. It's why we watch some of the movies that we watch. We, our heart longs for this combination of wonder and terror, but that can only be fully met understanding the person of God. Number two, what God's greatness means for us is recompense. This is just a way to keep with the alliteration. All it means is to get what you paid for. 
Recompense means to get what you paid for. There's this really haunting verse in Thessalonians. Um, Paul says it this way. He says, he will punish, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He says those tiny little fists that are shaking at God, those that rebel, those that choose to not believe, he says there will be punishment for them. That's what's coming for disobedience, getting what you paid for. There's this scene at the end of of Revelation when Jesus comes riding on this horse and he's got this white robe and it actually says it's, 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 it's drenched in, in, in blood. And he, and he comes at the very end of all things. And at the end of it, in verse 15, it says, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which to stri- which to strike, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. This isn't a wholly pleasant thing to think about. He says at the end of it, Jesus is going to show up, and it's going to be game, set, and match. And for those that rebel, for those that do not choose to trust and obey, he says he squashes them like grapes under his feet. And this is, this is clear enough that a three-year-old could understand this. No one who resists that great, almighty God succeeds. Now you might say, well, why is it that there's so many people on earth who do evil, do whatever they want, and they seem to be prosperous, they seem to be doing okay, God doesn't seem to be squashing them. Well, he's appointed a day when this is coming, and today is not that day. At the end of it all, all things will be made right. And those who refuse him will get with exactly what they bargained for. But the last thing God's greatness means for us, for those who choose to sign that treaty with God written in the blood of Jesus, there's sweet, sweet refuge. Psalm 91 says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of of the Almighty, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There's this kid on my basketball team. Uh, his name was Andrew. Really little, little guy. Really tiny. Even as a junior, he was just, just little. Short, skinny. You know, you could knock him over by looking at him. And Andrew, though, he was fearless. He would walk up to players on the other team. He would pick a fight with them. He would say whatever he wanted to. I remember one time we were on this road trip, and he came up to one of the kids on the team who was much bigger than him, and he started poking at him, and finally the guy turns around. He says, do you want to fight? And Andrew takes a few steps back, and he goes, yeah, we do. And there he's got Mylon, who is our senior captain, who is scary enough, I don't think I would want to pick on Mylon, right? He's a very intimidating fellow. And, and Andrew wasn't scared because he knew a fight here included a fight with Mylon. So he says, bring it on. We can take you. And they did. They whooped the kid. And I just looked the other way. Um, now, what I'm not saying is that in this world, we can go and start picking fights with people and be like, God, get him. And he's just like, lightning bolt, you know, and we got God on our side. We're like, yes. That's not the point, but the, the point is, man, 
no matter what we face, no matter what difficulty in our life, no matter what God has put on our plate, no matter what valley of darkness he's called us to walk through, it's not just us and that. It's us and that. Does our heart fully understand when we say, my God who loves me, who gave himself for me, is almighty. In other words, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he's called us to something, what in the created universe, what, what demon, what person, what power of nature can stand against the almighty God who created it and is superior to it all? There's nothing that we should be afraid of. We rest in the shadows of the wings of the Almighty. This changes everything. This gives us unending security in the greatness of God. The awesome thing is that that great God is also a very good God. If this God was an evil God, there would be terror, but there would not be wonder. And in and, and two weeks from now, after Off the Wall is here, we're going to talk about the goodness of God. And I don't think there's any greater demonstration of God's greatness than when a God that big, that high, that incomprehensible, stooped this low to become a man and to die for us, to reconcile us with that big, great God. How big is your God? How big is your God? Father, God Almighty, Jehovah, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchangeable, infinite, perfect God. We come to you very changeable, very limited, very imperfect, and we fall at your feet. And we acknowledge that we don't even have the right to step into such a presence on our own merit. And Father, I confess that so often I have such a small picture of who you are. I make you very little, and I make it possible to, to, to have the audacity to either challenge you as God, or even worse, to try to take your throne over myself. Father, may you give us the eyes of grace to see how great you are, that we might give you your due worship and we might rest in the shadows, take refuge in the wings of the Almighty and spread the news to everybody in this community and to the ends of this world that there's a day coming, you're riding back on that horse and we're either going to find refuge or we're going to find recompense. May our lives and the words in our mouth echo the greatness of you, our God. It's in your name of your son, Jesus, that we come to your great presence and we pray these things. Amen.